0: But we are uh, we are in uh, Genesis chapter seven today, and uh, we will be uh, doing a lot of kind of foundational and introductory work regarding the flood uh today so as far as the um, oh yeah go ahead as far as the uh, uh, exegesis of the passage. We'll only do a limited amount of that today, but uh, <clears throat> but we do want to lay some foundation and also look back at some of the things that we looked at um, last week. Uh, I just want. I also wanted to mention just uh, uh, for those of you who do use the recordings, they are available. They're available. They're available to to you all, but they're also available to anybody in church that wants to borrow, them, of course. <laughs> The recordings of these lessons. I do on occasion. I don't know what the cause of it is, but the recording last week, and and I've had this happen two or three other times, have some kind of annoying background noise to them. And I haven't been able to figure out why that happens. I don't know if it's if I don't get my plug-in tight or what it is. But but I apologize. You can still hear the recording fine. It's just you hear that kind of little background noise back there. So most of the recordings are are really quite good, uh, except. Uh, uh, Rick was complaining that he had one that just quit in the middle on him <laughs> <laughs> a few weeks ago. And I, I checked it over. I couldn't find what the problem was with it. But at any rate, uh, most of them are pretty good. But I just wanted to mention that if you get one that has uh, that background noise on it, I'm trying to figure out what's causing that. I don't know why we're getting that. But hopefully uh, it won't happen today. So, uh, <clears throat> Okay, so... Uh, Last week we began uh, in uh, chapter six, verse nine, and we looked pretty much through the rest of the chapter. And uh, and today, as I said, I want to pick up in chapter seven, uh, and 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 look uh, through through chapter seven. But we're we're just doing a lot of overview and introduction uh, today. Uh, as, we, as we get into chapter 7, and then we'll look at some specifics in the chapter as well. And then next week, we'll pick that up and do some more, uh, and I'll explain that as we're going through the lesson today. Okay. Uh, but let's, uh, let's begin reading. Uh, this is quite a bit to read for, uh, for today, but let's do this anyway. Let's begin reading in chapter 6, verse 9. And read down all the way through chapter 7 because all this stuff goes together and we're going to be talking about all of it today. And as we read through, the, as we read through this part portion of chapter 6, remember some of the things we talked about and we'll do a little bit of review here uh, before we go on with chapter 7. But beginning in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. uh, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to, the cu- uh, to a cubit from the top and set a door in the, of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with uh, lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, uh, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did." Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, a male and a, uh, two, a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by, the, uh, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out the face from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God commanded Noah. It came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second uh, month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and the sons of uh, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of, the, of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth the ark floated on the surface of the water the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered the water prevailed 15 cubits higher than the mount and the mountains were covered all flesh that moved on the earth perished birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land all in whose nostrils was the breath of life died Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those who were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Okay? Well, uh, going back there to chapter 6, beginning in verse 9 and down through the end of the chapter what do you remember that we talked about last week? God knew how to rescue Noah. He knew that Noah was righteous and He provided a way for him to be rescued. Okay. And we talked about, looked at that verse or talked about, I don't remember if we looked over there, but we talked about the verse in Peter where God says that He knows how to rescue the righteous. Uh, from, uh, from temptation or from judgment as the case is here that he's, just, that he's talking about there in Peter. And that's one of the things we see with God. He provided a way for Noah to escape. What else? Fictive kinship. Fictive kinship. Okay. What is fictive kinship? You're not my kin, but I am going to act like it. Okay. 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 uh, What is the importance of fictive kinship? Why was it important? It was important because it relates to this whole idea of establishing a covenant. And and like I said, we were just doing some introductory uh, tampering with this idea of covenant last week because it's just beginning to be introduced to us. When we get over to the end of the flood, after Noah comes out of the ark and God actually establishes the Noahic covenant, we'll delve into it a lot more and talk about it a lot more but we talked about the fact that we're we're dealing here with a with a patriarchal tribal society okay and so <clears throat> we talked about how everything all relationships and responsibilities and obligations and benefits are somehow connected with family so if you wanted to establish if you wanted to establish some kind of obligatory or beneficial relationship with somebody who wasn't family you had to make them family okay and so you would establish these fictive kinships and the way you would do this uh, was through the establishment of a covenant okay what else so who was the fictive kinship between this? Like, Okay uh, it was between well and his no no who is it that announces that he's going to ins- instigate a covenant God, okay? With Noah, okay? So the fictive kinship will be between God and Noah, okay? And that's what's so exciting about it, that Noah realizes even before he goes into the ark, he realizes that God has promised that he's going to have this really special relationship with God, this fictive kinship that he's going to have with God is going to be established at some point. He doesn't know when, but it becomes clear as he comes out of the ark and and, and offers the sacrifice. Do you remember what we called or what the term is that's used for establishing or making a covenant. I talked about the term that was used. Pardon? Okay, cut a beret, okay, or cutting a beret or cutting a covenant, okay? And uh, we'll get into that again, as I said, more when we get uh, uh, to uh, the story of the Noahic covenant. And then later when we get to the story of God's covenant with Abraham, we'll get into the significance of that particular term and why that's important, okay? But I just want to lay these foundations so you'll remember them when we get there, okay? Anything else from last week? One thing you mentioned was that a person's responsibilities and privileges are bound up with who they're related to, Yeah. which is why that's so important. Yeah, yeah. We also talked about how amazing it Built this huge ark, he took all this food, all these animals, that would just be an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, yeah. It really is an amazing accomplishment. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, even though it's not really explicitly stated in Scripture, uh, why it seems apparent that the initial instructions to build the ark probably came about 120 years before the flood. Okay, And like I said, that's not explicitly stated in Scripture, but there are some things from which we infer that there's actually a 120-year period of warning between when God first says that He's going to bring the judgment and and when it actually occurs. And one of the reasons that I believe <clears throat> that it was, in fact, 120 years is because, just because of the immensity of the task of what uh, Noah had to do. You know, I I engaged in some constructive tasks around my house, you know, over the years. And I've sometimes wondered <laughs> if they were going to take 120 years. Fortunately, uh, most of them have not as yet taken 120 years. There are some that are still kind of in limbo. <laughs> but, but, you know, I can just imagine what a, what a massive chore that is. Here we have a, we have a ship, literally a ship. And I understand that there, was, there, there were no ships constructed of this magnitude until about 200 years ago. So that gives you an idea of the magnitude of this ship, 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and, and, uh, and about uh, 40 feet tall. It was just a massive, uh, massive undertaking. So it really is really quite remarkable. Okay, what else? <coughs> okay let's uh let's go on and think about some other things then um, as we as we pick up the story in in chapter seven, and actually uh we really kind of think that we're really getting into the meat of the flood story beginning in chapter seven and in, and in verse one, but the flood account really begins. Clear back there in chapter 6, it begins there about verse 11 where God begins to explain or give the reasons why he's going to judge the earth and how he's going to judge the earth and what Noah's responsibilities are as far as building an ark and he gives him the instructions to build an ark. So the flood story really begins clear back there in chapter 6. And we talked about the fact that beginning in chapter 6, verse 9, we're actually starting into the third Taladot of Genesis. Okay? We're starting into this third account or this third generation. And, and the thing that I pointed out about this third Taladot is that it's, uh, that it's unique in, in, in contrast to most of the others, in Gen- the other ten in Genesis, the other nine in Genesis, and in that uh, most of the others... The Taladot is named or the account is named after an individual, but it's really about his descendants. Okay. Uh, so but but the account of of Noah that we that we enter into here in chapter six, where it actually names it as being the account of his generations, it's really about Noah and it's really about the flood. So in essence, what we have here is we have an account. Uh, we have one of the ten accounts of generations that 's devoted entirely to one thing exclusively, and that 's the story of the flood okay so it begins here in chapter six and goes into chapter nine and and uh, and then we 'll go on to the next one, which is the story of noah 's or the account or the Taladot of noah 's sons okay well uh, <coughs> What I think is significant about that is that Moses, as he's writing the book of Genesis, as he's, as he's breaking it down into this outline that we've talked about so many times before, that he devotes an entire section just to the flood. And I think that tells us something about the importance of the flood. The flood is, is an important, uh, uh, even a foundational aspect of Christian theology. Okay. It's very important. And... And so because of its importance, Moses devotes a great deal of time to it and he really belabors some points as he talks about the flood. And you may have noticed that as we were reading through it and we'll talk about it some more here in a minute. But he really belabors some points because this, this whole idea of this cataclysmic, catastrophic flood uh, and the implications of it and the significance of it just come up Repeatedly, come up over and over again uh, throughout uh, throughout the the scriptures. So you have uh, it comes up in Job as an illustration of God's judgment of the wicked. It comes up in 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 the book of Psalms in Psalm 104. The flood is used as example of God's majestic control. Uh, over his creation. It comes up in, in the book of Isaiah in chapter 54. It comes up as, a, uh, as an illustration of God's faithfulness and why Israel could believe that God would be faithful to them uh, in spite of all their sin and in spite of all their failure. Uh, that the, the, uh, the incidents of the flood and the things that happened right after the flood are given to the to the Jews there in Isaiah as evidence of God's faithfulness. Okay, it comes up. Uh, Jesus uses it in in, uh, in the uh, in the Olivet discourse in Matthew twenty four. Jesus uses the flood as a uh, in in several ways, but he uses it as an evidence of uh, of the certainty of judgment that God is going to judge sin. He uses it as an example of the suddenness of judgment. He, remember, he says uh, that during the days of Noah, that they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that, they entered, that, that Noah entered into the ark. And so until the very day that we were reading about here in chapter 7, that Noah entered the ark, life was just going on. Okay. And he said, and what he says is the final judgment is going to be the same way. That people will just be eating and drinking and just thinking life has always always been this way and is always going to be this way. And 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 so Jesus uses the flood as an illustration of, of not only the certainty of judgment, but the suddenness and the unexpectedness of judgment. And in doing that, Jesus is also pointing out the folly of a particular philosophical frame of reference or presupposition called uniformitarianism. And what we mean by uniformitarianism is the idea that things are uniform. Things always are and always will be and always have been the same. And it's a philosophical frame of reference. It really isn't scientifically grounded, but it's really a philosophical or worldview outlook. Okay. And Jesus shows the folly of that. Then we get over into, into Peter's writings in First and Second Peter. And he uses the flood in several different ways. He uses the flood uh, as also as an illustration of the certainty of judgment and the suddenness of judgment. Uh, but he uses it specifically uh, not only to show the folly of uniformitarianism, but, but to really refute it. So he talks about the people who say, well, things have always been the same since the days when our fathers fell asleep. And he says it escapes their notice that this great flood occurred and that God brought judgment. So the point is that all the way through Scripture, we find this recurring use of the flood to establish various... Aspects, or to demonstrate or illustrate or, 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 or just forcefully picture for us various aspects of Christian theology. Okay? So it's very foundational. And uh, we'll get into some more of that also in a minute. But because it's so foundational, the story of the flood has just come under just withering attack okay? from those who don't want to confront the implications of Christian theology. Okay. And, and of course, uh, uh, some of those would be people who aren't Christians at all or make no pretense to be Christians, and they just think the flood story is just kind of this ludicrous, absurd story that somebody has concocted. But then you have, among people who profess to be Christians or profess to uh, study and, and know the Bible, you also have, from them, uh, just really vigorous attacks on on the historicity of the flood account, the accuracy of the flood account and our interpretation of the flood account. Okay, and and, and really those those attacks started uh, really uh, in force about, oh, probably the 18th century, 17th century or so when they really began to attack. And there were a French scientist that kind of started the whole thing uh, back in about the mid 1700s or whatever. And, and, and then you go on till you get, uh, till the middle of the 1800s and you, and you have the writings of a German theologian, a guy by the name of Wellhausen, or something like that, I don't know if you know, how is that how you say it, Wellhausen? Uh, and uh, he came up with this uh, fantastic idea, he thought it was a really great idea, and it became very popular, still very popular today among theologians, uh, liberal theologians, is the idea that Genesis and the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis specifically and the Pentateuch in general, is kind of a hodgepodge collection, uh, Put together, uh, kind of edited and put together sometime after the Jewish captivity in Babylon. And, uh, and he had a whole theory about this called the JEPD theory. And, and uh, so, at any anyway, rate, this whole idea of the, the, of the authority of Scripture, particularly the authority of the Pentateuch and the authority of, of uh, the book of Genesis, and particularly for our interest today, the authority of the flood account, has just come under this just withering attack. The question is, is this flood account accurate and how should we understand it? Okay. Well, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to really approach it from a scientific point of view. I'm going to mention a few things uh, from the scientific uh, perspective, but if you want uh, some expert opinion on that, you're going to have to go elsewhere. Uh, but I want to look at th- three things that that demonstrates three areas or categories that demonstrate to us not only that the flood actually happened, but also that it was, in fact, a worldwide catastrophe. Okay, and And I want to stress that aspect, and that's particularly what I want to focus on today is this idea of a worldwide catastrophe. Because even among evangelicals today, uh, there, there's a—I don't know if it's a growing, but at least there's a there is to some degree an element or a number of, of even evangelical theologians who accept the biblical testimony of the flood. They believe there was a catechismic flood, and they believe it had great significance both uh, historically and theologically. But they believe it was local and or regional. And what I mean by that. Is that they believe that the flood occurred basically in the area that we think of today uh, as Mesopotamia so we 're talking about the you know the area we 're always thinking about today, you know Iraq, Iran, and that area okay so we 're talking about basically kind of what 's generally the Tigris Euphrates region that whole region there, and that what is described for us in Genesis is actually a a local or a regional flood that involved that area that it was that it was massive, it was terribly destructive, but it was primarily local, okay? Their, their reasons, their primary reason for accepting the idea of a local as opposed to a worldwide cataclysm uh, is based on how they understand what they believe is the scientific evidence. So based on, the, based on what they understand that modern geology and archaeology and things like that are telling us about the history of the world, they assume that the flood could not have been universal, could not have been worldwide. Okay. So they go back to Genesis, and they reread Genesis in light of modern science. I would suggest to you that we ought to read science in light of Genesis and not read Genesis in light of science, if, in fact, we believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. I don't believe that the Scriptures and science contradict one another, but I think that it is important for us not to, not to approach science with certain presuppositions that force us to reinterpret Scripture. Okay. And what I mean by that is a few minutes ago, we just talked about this idea of, of uh, a presupposition, a philosophical presupposition of, of uniformitarianism, being the idea that things always have been the way they are now. And, and sp- specifically, we're referring to the whole idea of how the laws of nature and the laws of physics and those kind of things operate. That they have always operated the way they operate today. Okay? And that's uniformitarianism. There's another uh, frame of reference or worldview, though, which is catastrophism. And catastrophism suggests... That the world isn't or hasn't always been the way it is now, but there have been some in the past, there have been some great catastrophic events that changed the whole nature of the way things are. Okay? And that's the philosophical position I come from. And I am forced to come to that philosophical position because I believe Genesis chapter 1. Now, actually, what's interesting is that even in the realm of science, this whole idea of uniformitarianism is now coming under question within the last 75 years or so. And and the thing that's been bringing it under question is what? Pardon? No. What major development started happening towards the early to the middle part? of the uh, 20th century that changed the way we view the natural world? Pardon? The theory of relativity and everything that's attendant with that, Einstein and all his buddies. And the idea, what they discovered that was so earth-shattering that they didn't know before, when they looked at the whole universe, what did they discover that they realized, whoa, we've got to rethink everything? What did they discover? Okay. Okay, they discovered, pardon? It's expanding. They discovered that the universe is expanding, okay? And when they discovered the universe was expanding, they went, well, if it's expanding, then we can go back in time. Obviously, it was smaller. And as they dealt with the implications of that, they began to come up with what was called the Big Bang Theory, okay? And... And again, I'm not a scientist and I have serious questions about the Big Bang Theory based on Scripture. That's another issue altogether. But one of the things that the Big Bang Theory did or says is that both space and time at some point began. And before that, there was no space and there was no time. Now, that's catastrophism for you. <laughs> I can't describe a bigger catastrophe than the Big Bang if, in fact, it really happened, okay? And so even, even modern science is coming to the conclusion that things are not now as they have, always have been, okay? Now, but the problem is that much of geological science is based on this pre, still based on this presupposition of uniformitarianism, Okay? But I would suggest that if we, if we at least hold that presupposition at least tentatively or gently and allow for the possibility of catastrophism, that as we examine the scientific evidence, we may discover, and in fact there are many scientists who believe we do discover, uh, a great deal of evidence for a worldwide cataclysmic, cataclysmic flood. Okay. And some of these... Things I'll just mention, like I say, I'm not a scientist. If you want the real authority on this, you're going to have to talk to somebody else. But I'll just mention two or three things that I've come across that are really fascinating to me. And, and uh, one, one uh, phenomena that they run into in geology and archaeology uh, uh, or paleontology is, is, the, um, is the existence of, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right here, but ociferous fissures, okay? And these ociferous fissures are what they sound like. They're these really quite large fissures or, or, or just gaps or, or like caverns or whatever in the surface of the earth. And they typically occur in higher elevations. So they occur in, you know, in like, in, in, like if, it's, if they occur in, say, an area that's generally a, a, a plain area or something. They 'll be kind of on a high hill or something or something and there'll be this like this rend in the earth or this fissure in the earth and they find in some of these ociferous fissures they find massive in some cases thousands or tons of animal bones in these fissures always in these high up places okay and what's fascinating is is that it's a hodgepodge of animals it's not just one kind of animal but they'll find in these fissures just just dozens of different kinds of animals, including animals that typically we think of as don't get along together. <laughs> they don't coexist. Okay? So you would have you would have uh, animals of prey and and, and 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 then you would have the animals that they prey upon. So all their bones all intermixed in these fissures and they find these in these high up places in these fissures of the earth, all over the world. And the question is, why? (laughs) Why would you find all kinds of animals who obviously died together, their bones are all intermixed together, who died together in these high elevated places, animals who typically you would never find in the same proximity together. Why would you find them there? Well, if you're not forced by uniformitarianism, to conclude otherwise, you might go, that could be evidence for a great cataclysmic flood. Right? Uh, another interesting uh, example from science is the discovery, uh, particularly in Siberia. This happens in other places, but particularly in Siberia, they have discovered, and, and you've read about this, you've seen stories of these massive mammoth animals okay, that they have found, the mammoths and you see pictures they look like elephants but they're much bigger than elephants they're just huge okay and they've found some of these dudes standing upright and this is buried in the in the ice there in the in the permafrost there in Siberia they have found them standing upright with all the hair still on their bodies the food still in their stomachs their meat so well preserved that modern wolves and dogs when they find them and after they thaw out we'll go and eat the meat. Okay. But they find these mammoths intact, food still in their stomach. Obviously, they were frozen so instantaneously that they did not have time to even begin to decay. Okay. And we find these in Siberia. Obviously, uh, obviously, some evidence of some kind of worldwide cataclysmic event that happened so suddenly that these animals didn't even have time to fall over. Okay. Well, uh, and then there are there are various and, and this gets into areas of geology that I don't understand. But it, there are various evidences from geology of way sediments are laid down and things like that, which you can study about and you can look at. But anyway, what I'm suggesting to you is that is that once you look at the evidence, acknowledging the possibility that the world has not always been, that the laws of nature and physics, etc., have not always operated identical to the way they do today, once you allow for that possibility, and then look at the evidence that's out there, you'll see uh, that there is a great deal of evidence that can be interpreted uh, from the, uh, interpreted to indicate uh, a worldwide catalysic flood. Yes. Uh, no, I've never seen it. I did read something about that within the last few weeks. The fossilization mm-hmm. of things that happened within a two-week period that matches what, is, what they find. Yeah. I, I did read something about that within the last couple. And that was fascinating because we know how long it took Mount St. Holland to accomplish this and indicates that it doesn't take millions and millions of years to fossilize some of these things that, uh, as they happened at St. Helens. I did read something about that a few weeks ago. I do remember that. But well that's one evidence, okay? <clears throat> There's another interesting evidence for a worldwide cataclysmic flood. And that is the existence all over the world of what we call flood traditions. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that there've been documented at least 230 distinct oral or written flood traditions from all over the world. And what we mean by that is, for example, the example that I used several weeks ago, and I'm pulling some of this up from ancient memory, okay? But when I first moved to Colorado Springs, uh, when I was in high school... Uh, and I I was really interested in the area, and I was interested in the history of the area and stuff, and I I was in the scouting program at the time, and so I was very interested in Indian lore and stuff like that. So I was studying the the indigenous Indians to that area of Colorado, which were the Ute Indians. And, uh, And as I was studying and reading, I just came across this fascinating story in the legends of the Ute Indians. It was a flood account, and it talked about how there was this great... Great, worldwide, devastating flood. I don't remember all the details of the legend now because it's been a year or two since I studied this. But but as I recall it, as I'm just recalling it right now, as I'm speaking to it, to you about it, there was this worldwide flood and it rose up almost to the top of the peak of Pikes Peak. And that there were a handful, one or two or whatever, I forget, of the Ute Indians who managed to escape the destruction by making it to the top of Pike's Peak. Okay, well, that's an example of a flood tradition. There are actually, and, and I don't know if in the 230 that are listed, that that particular one that I stumbled across among the Ute Indians is even listed. But there are 230, uh, at least 230 identifiable, distinct flood traditions from all over the world. So when you go to Greenland, the 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 indigenous people of of Greenland had a You go to Western Europe and in Western Europe, you find that the people who lived there many, many, many years ago had flood traditions. You go to Brazil, you go to uh, you go to Iraq or Iran, you go all over the world. Wherever you go, you find these flood traditions. And what's fascinating about these flood traditions is, well, obviously, by calling them flood traditions, there's one uniform thing that you find in all of them, which is a, a flood, okay? But it's not only that, but oftentimes you find striking parallels to the account of the flood that we see in Genesis, okay? So in many cases, the name of the hero in these flood traditions sounds very much like the biblical name of Noah. In other cases, you have accounts where they, the, the survivors built a boat and they escaped, in some of the flood traditions, it's eight people. Okay. Uh, uh, you have uh, uh, in something like 65 or 70% of these 230 flood traditions, the reason that's given in the tradition for the flood is the wickedness of man. Okay. Uh, and on and on, I go on and on and on like this. What, what is interesting is that as you get closer to the area of the Middle East, the flood traditions have more similarity and greater similarity to the account in Genesis. As you move further away, those flood traditions develop more and more what we might think of as local culture. For example, the one I just used of the Ute Indians in Pikes Peak. You know That would be an, an illustration of local culture being involved in the flood tradition. Well, what is significant about this is that is that when when we study ancient man, and we discover that in different tribes and different groups, you have a similar account of a certain event, we begin to start to think there must be some historical basis to it. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting about these flood accounts, and I don't know what percentage of it is, but it seems, to, it seems that it's almost universal in these flood accounts, that in all these various 230 flood accounts, or in most of them anyway, what is significant is the people group from whom that flood account originates all attribute their ancestry and their lineage to the survivor of the flood. Okay? So what I'm suggesting to you is that all over the world, wherever you go, all over the world, you find these various people groups who have these flood traditions and they all say... We're here today because our ancestors survived the flood because he was righteous. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. Now, if in fact the flood was only local, how do you account for all these flood traditions all over the world? If in fact the flood was only local and only included basically the Mesopotamia region, then how do you account for the fact that, that people who did not live in Mesopotamia at the time not only have a flood tradition, but attribute their survival, attribute their lineage to the survivor of the flood in Mesopotamia? Okay. Well, really, I think the only way to really explain that is to understand that all of these flood people do, in fact, trace their lineage back to the survivor of the flood. And that all over the world, everyone else, however far population has spread by this point, we're we are at least 2,000 years removed or approximately 2,000 years removed or more from creation uh, that uh, people have, however far people have spread that everybody on the face of the earth died. Okay. Well, so we have science, scientific evidence and we have the evidence of the traditions Uh, these flood traditions, but I would suggest to you that those are only secondary evidences. The primary evidence for me that there was a worldwide cataclysmic flood is the testimony of Scripture. And as I read the Scripture... Over and over and over and over again, I see very clear evidence in scripture for this idea of a worldwide cataclysmic flood and I listed a number of them down, and I'm going to go through them uh, through some of them for you because I want you to think about them okay uh, i've got I think about a dozen or so here if I can find them here in my notes uh, Here we go uh one of them, the first reason I have, and, and some of these reasons are, are strong reasons. They may not be conclusive, but they, in conjunction with the others, I think they lend support. And some of them I think, just standing by themselves, are conclusive. But I'll, I'll list them off for you as we go through. Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the structure of the passage and, and we'll break up. But uh, the first one I have here is that. Throughout the flood account, beginning uh, just in the passage we've read so far. So I'm not including chapter eight or chapter nine, okay? Which also includes uh, part of the flood account. But just in the part we've looked at so far, beginning in Genesis chapter six, verse eleven, and down through the end of chapter seven, we have a number of universal terms, okay? So we have, I think, something like 23, 24 times in the passage. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a section of 32 verses or so, uh, about 23, 24 times, we have terms like all, every, every, everything under the heavens, all of creation, everyone, everything. Over and over and over again, you see universal expressions like that. Okay. Now, uh, in fairness, those who argue that the flood was not universal, that it, those, and I'll just talk here about about people who, in general, believe the Bible and are Christians and love the Lord, but who believe that the flood was local rather than universal. Their explanation is that that there are places in Scripture where it is clear that universal terms aren't really intended, and we can tell from the context, to be taken absolutely universally, okay? Uh, and I meant to jot down some examples for this in my notes so I could cite some for you, but I, I, I forgot to do it. So uh, uh, if you want those, I'll have to come up with them. But there are some examples. So for example, today, uh, as an example of how that might happen today, we might say something like, well, OU won its football game against Baylor yesterday, and, and all of Norman is really excited about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a general term, applies to the vast majority of people in Norman are probably happy about that. But there are some, like myself, who are Nebraska fans, it you know, really doesn't matter much. And there are others, uh, I'm working for a guy who's an OSU fan, and uh, I think he probably just assumed they lost. You know. So if we say all oh, of Norman's really pretty, we're, we don't really mean every single soul in Norman is excited about it. Okay, so there are universal terms that are used in Scripture in the same way and they're used, to, they're used in a general sense but aren't necessarily intended to be taken as absolutely universal, okay? And there are some examples. and I'm sorry I didn't get those notes jotted down for you. I should have written down some examples uh, that, and I just I can't pull them up off the top of my head here. But anyway, any rate, there are examples in Scripture where that happens. And so they suggest that that when the Scriptures here in Genesis 6 use the term every and all, exception, it's, it's talking from Noah's perspective that to him, what he saw, what he understood is that all of it happened. But it wasn't really all over the world. Okay. Well, the problem with that is it doesn't fit in the context. In the context, we're coming right off the heels of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And these universal terms that are used here in Genesis 6 are also used in Genesis chapter 1. And they are used very clearly in Genesis one in this universal sense that God created everything, and He created all these creatures, and He, you know, and and He created all of the earth. So, so these universal terms coming in the in the flow of the context of Genesis, where the flood is given as a distinctly given as a contrast to the creation account that God created the earth and now he has chosen to destroy his creation coming in the context, the universal terms should be understood to be truly universal. The phrase, the second thing is the phrase under the whole heaven is used six times outside of the flood account in the Old Testament. Every time it's used outside of the flood account in the Old Testament, it clearly has a universal implication to mean the whole earth. The term, which is translated in your Bibles, probably translated in your Bibles, the waters of the flood, the Hebrew word there is a technical term. It is only used in the Old Testament to refer to the waters of Noah's flood. So when this term is used, this, this Hebrew term is used, it's always a technical term. So when it's used, for example, in the Psalms, it's clearly used to refer to the flood of Noah. So, clearly, as the writer of Genesis is using this particular term, he's intending people to understand this is not one of many floods. This is one distinct, unique flood of which the waters themselves are unique. Okay? So, uh, that would be the third point. The fourth point, Because it's very clear from the whole gist of things from Genesis 1 through Genesis 6 that the sinful condition of man was universal. And because the judgment of the flood was a judgment on the condition of sinful man whose thoughts of his heart were only evil continually, it clearly calls for a universal judgment. The next point is, I don't know what we're on here about number five or six, The divine purpose stated for the flood was the destruction of creation for which God said He was sorry. God said He was sorry He created the earth. He was sorry He created man on the earth. And then we talked about that back in Genesis chapter 6. That's the stated reason for the flood. If that's the stated reason for the flood, why does God only destroy a tiny fraction of the creation He says He's sorry to make? The next point is that the genealog- genealogical lines of all the nations are traced to Noah and his three sons. So we get to Genesis chapter 10. When we get to Genesis chapter 10, we'll see that. That Genesis 10 clearly traces the genealogical lines of all the population of the earth back to the three sons of Noah. Okay. Uh, so obviously there were not other survivors or people who avoided the flood. The next point is he says that the flood topped the mountains by 20 feet. Ararat itself is over 16,000 feet tall. The ark landed somewhere on Mount Ararat, towards the top of Mount Ararat. If, in fact, they have indications of the existence of Noah's ark, uh, it's somewhere around the 13,000 foot level. Yes, sir? And if the flood was only local, why the need for an ark? Well, you're getting ahead of me, Rick. You're getting ahead of me. One reason at a time. <laughs> okay, good point. Good point. Uh, so, we have, a, we have a flood that goes over 20 feet over the top of the mountain, which is roughly the draft of the ship, the draft of the ark. Yes, sir. And it doesn't just crest there. There you go. You guys keep getting ahead of me. <laughs> you're right. That's my next one. The waters prevailed for 150 days. Now, how many floods have you known where the water was over the top of the mountains and stayed there for 150 days in a local flood? Okay. I mean, even Katrina, the water didn't stay around that long, right? Okay. So, obviously, the water stayed for a very, very long. thats That's the time that it prevailed. Okay. Then he starts talking about the abatement and the abatement takes a considerable period of time after that. So, the water just stayed there. For 150 days. Okay? So, uh, that would be uh, another evidence of a worldwide flood. If you have that massive amount of water and it stays there for 150 days, it's obviously covering the entire globe. Okay? Then the next question is, if only the animals in the Mesopotamian region were to be rescued, only the species which are indigenous to the Mesopotamian region were to be rescued, why build an ark so gigantic? This is a massive structure as we talked about. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 40 feet tall, three decks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's huge. I, you know, I don't know how it compares to a modern aircraft, but it's quite large. Okay. And the question is, why is such an ark necessary if you're only rescuing those animals which are indigenous to the Mesopotamian region? Okay? Well, but then the next question comes up. Uh, Rick's question was, why build an ark at all? I mean, when a flood comes today, what do the animals do? They escape. They go for high ground. And, and if, in fact, all of them in the region perish, so what? The ones outside of that region or on of that locality, they just come back in and fill it in. Okay, So, God's instruction to build an ark in order to save all these animals, I mean, He could have just told them, build a raft so you can float on it, right? You don't need an ark to save all these animals. Okay. Well, but then the question is, why does He even need to tell Noah to build a raft? In other words... Remember last week we talked about how God said in Peter, He says that God knows how to save the righteous from temptation and He uses two illustrations. Remember what the two illustrations were that He uses there in Peter? One of them was Lot, One of them was Lot and the other was Noah. Noah in the flood, right? Okay. How did He rescue Lot? He helped him escape. He helped him escape. Why? Because it was a local catastrophe. It was Sodom and Gomorrah in that area right around Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sends the angels in, he grabs Lot by the hand, and he drags him out of the region. Now, Noah had 120 years. How long does it take to get out of Mesopotamia? I mean, I walk, I may walk slow, but in 120 years, I can get out of Mesopotamia. Right? So, why in the world does. God even instructed Noah to build an ark. If he wants to save Noah and his family, just tell him to go to Canaan, go to Russia, go to China, go somewhere. Why stay where you are and build an ark? And I don't even have the. Yes, uh, ark. I, I want to add to the evidence here. I don't know how many people have ever been to Dinosaur National Park. It's I haven't. In the corner of Colorado. Uh-huh. Uh they there were so many dinosaur bones washed into this one bend in the old riverbed that they actually built a museum on top of it. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, all those bones were washed there. I can't think of the word. It's not erosion. It was much faster than erosion, mm-hmm. another geological term. But uh, I mean, it's massive, and there's dozens of species right in one crook in the river, and uh, the, even the. The professionals there say they were washed here suddenly. So, I, I, there, that's great. That's a good illustration. That's good. Well, we come down now in my list here to the last couple of things, and I think this really comes to the crux of the issue, and that is the covenant rainbow that God gives in, uh, at the end of the flood. The covenant rainbow that God gives is made to all the earth based on what has just transpired. So when God makes His covenant, that eventually we'll study the Noahic covenant when we get to that, that he, as He makes that covenant, He makes that covenant with the whole earth based on what has just transpired. And you'll remember, my last point, you'll remember that one aspect of that rainbow covenant was what? That God would what? He would never do this again. One of the interesting arguments is the people who talk about a local flood use one of the evidences they use is that the Mesopotamian region is known for these massive floods that until um, the development of modern technology and dams and things used to ravage the Mesopotamia area regularly. And so they say, well, it's only natural to assume that this was one of these massive floods that used to ravage the Mesopotamia area. And in acknowledging that, they are suggesting that God has lied and not kept His Word. Because if, in fact, God said, what I have just done, I will never do again as long as the earth exists, then God's promise has not been kept. And over and over again, we have seen regional cataclysmic floods. Take, for example, the tsunami in 2004. A flood of massive proportions killed tens, hundreds of thousands of people, covered uh, how many thousands of square miles of the earth's surface were covered by that massive flood. Okay? And that's only one example of numerous catastrophic local and regional floods that we have had since the day God said, I won't ever do this again. And so really what it comes down to, and to me that last argument in itself stands by itself. Without any of the other arguments, that argument itself is is, God, is God's Word true. And the Scriptures, as we pointed out earlier, the Scriptures make a point of saying in Isaiah 54, just as I promised that I would not flood the world again, I will not do to you what I have done to you in the past. He's saying to Israel. He's making a promise to Israel based upon the promise that He made to Noah at the end of the flood. So... What I'm suggesting to you is that as we look more at this chapter, and we'll look more at it next week, as we look at it, I want you to understand that what this chapter is talking about is it is talking about a worldwide catastrophic event that covered all the mountains. Now, I don't believe by that, incidentally, that since uh, Mount Everest is... Uh, what, 32,000 feet tall, something like that, I don't believe the water was 32,000 feet deep. I don't think Mount Everest was that tall at that time. Okay, Obviously, Mount Everest has been thrust up, as have the other mountains. Okay, So I don't, we don't have to believe that the water was six miles deep all over the world. Okay? It is interesting, incidentally, that on top of Mount Everest, they find fossils... Of sea creatures. <laughs> but I don't believe that Mount Everest was 32,000 feet uh, at, at this particular time in geological history. <clears throat> so that's just, those are just some introductory things for you to think about. I want to mention a couple other things real quickly, and then we'll go. That the critics of this passage, they point out to something, and you may have noticed this as we were reading through it. It's kind of a hard story to follow. Okay. Uh, because of the way it's written, it's, you know, just reading it through. It's a little bit hard to follow. And, and one of the reasons it's hard to follow is it just constantly repeating itself. Did you notice that? It keeps saying the same things over and over and over and over again. And the critics of the passage say, well, that's obvious evidence that somebody just took a hodgepodge of collection of stories of two or three different authors and put them all together, and they just kind of jumbled them all together, and that's why they repeat themselves, Okay. But what's interesting is they don't just repeat themselves two or three times. In some cases, in some aspects of the story are repeated four or five times. Okay. So we have a repetition of the idea of God's commandment over and over again. We have a repetition of, uh, of Noah and his family entering the ark, something like four times that's repeated. We have a repetition of the 40 days and 40 nights, two or three times that's repeated in the, in the passage. Uh, there's just there's a number of different aspects of the story that are repeated two or three or four or five times. Okay. Well, when you understand... As you read through all of the Old Testament, you discover that's a characteristic of Hebrew literature. That's the way the Hebrews wrote. They constantly repeated themselves. And there's one classic case we'll get to when we get to the story of Rebekah where uh, Abraham uh, sends his servant to get Rebekah as a wife for Isaac. It's a classic case. I love it. Because you read this whole... And there's a whole section. That's, I forget now the exact length. It's about 20 verses long or so. And then you get into the next chapter and he repeats the exact same, all 20 verses. He repeats it over again. And I go, why? Why does he do that? Well, they had a reason for doing that. When we get to the story of Rebecca, I'll explain to you the reason. It's really exciting. It's really fascinating why he does that. But but they had reasons for repeating the way they repeated and and. What do you think one of the reasons is? Emphasis. You probably noticed I do it, right? Constantly repeating. You're going, Ricky you already said that. Why did you say it again? I say it so that you'll remember it. And so I, I'm here in the class and I repeat myself several times in the hopes that you'll remember it. And then next week we'll come back together. What are we going to do at the beginning of the lesson next week? Repeat it again. <laughs> Why? So you remember it. Okay, So when we see these constant repetitions in the account of the flood, we shouldn't just go, oh, I've already read that and just move on. We should go, why did he say that again? Why did he say that again? Why did he say that again? And what stands out to me about the account of the flood is that so many things are repeated over and over again. Why does he repeat I think it's four times. Why does it repeat four times that Noah entered the ark? Well, these are some things that we're going to look at next week as we just look. Uh, next week, I just want to take some time to look at several of the repetitions and and try to glean from those repetitions the significance of what God is trying to communicate to us in those things. There's, and then finally, one other thing, the critics point out that he uses two different names for God in this passage. Well, obviously, it's written by two different authors because one author liked the name God and the other, Elohim, and the other God liked the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay? And so, one writer used one. Well, but we know that Elohim is, a, is more of a generic term to refer to the God of creation. Whereas Yahweh is a term that's used to identify the God of relationship, the God of covenant. Okay? If you keep that in mind and then look as you go through the account, when he uses the name Elohim, God, and when he uses the name Yahweh, Jehovah, or Lord, you'll go, "Oh, oh, I see." When he's talking about creation and God's ruler, he uses Elohim. When he's talking about God interacting with Noah, he uses Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah. Okay. Well, we'll go into all more this next week. We've run way out of time. So, thanks for your faithfulness.